pair of hikers from Rhode Island have been rescued after getting stuck in treacherous terrain on Mount Washington. At least one hiker expressed they were feeling symptoms of hypothermia. Officials tell us the hikers were brought to safety around 10 p.m. And thankfully, there were no injuries. This was no drill, but a real-life emergency deep in the White Mountains. Broadcasting from the Woodpeckers studio in the great state of New Hampshire, welcome to the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast, where we discuss all things related to hiking and search and rescue in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Here are your hosts, Mike and Stump. Okay, and I'm going to hit record here, so we are good to go. All right, Stomp, so number, number 19. Oh, yeah. That in between age, huh? Nothing going on with 19. What were you doing when you were 19? Just capitalizing on everything I could do when I was 18. That's about it. Nothing, nothing yeah, special. Yeah, it's a pretty. It's an indescript um, birthday. Yeah. So anyway, show 19. I was yearning um, to be 21, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Trying to score your fake IDs. Yes. Um, Stomp, I was I'm doing some White Mountain history, so you get to use your 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 friend's cut about like this is White Mountain history. <laughs> Let's dive into some White Mountains history, shall we? Have you have you ever heard of the first brew brew pub in the White Mountains? No, I have not. No. You nope. haven't? Alright, well. We've got our friend Stephen here that's going to be talking about uh, brewing and beer, so I figured I would share a little bit of White Mountain history here. So, um, have you ever heard of the English Jack, the Hermit of Crawford Notch? <clears throat> no, it's new by me. I'm taking. I'm taking. It wasn't. He wasn't a uh, Puritan or anything like that. <laughs> no, no, he was. Uh, he he sold beer to all the. Um, all the tourists that came up into to Crawford Notch. So this guy was. It's an interesting story. He um, he was born in like the 1820s, 1830s mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in England, and he was one of these um, vagabond type of sailors that had um, spent a lot of his life sort of sailing and getting into trouble on the ocean. But um, he ended up settling in Crawford Notch in the late 1800s and mm-hmm. lived until like the early 1900s. It's a real guy. And he had a... A house near the Crawford House. Yeah, in the late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds, um, and he called the house the ship because he was a sailor. So he would say, "Like, come to the ship <laughs> for so beer." Back in the <laughs> yeah, yeah. So back in the eighteen hundreds, like I think logging was still in play, but like the the um, Crawford Notch region was becoming like more of a tourist area. Mm-hmm. So this guy apparently he worked for the railroads, uh, the P and O. Portland, and I forget the name of the other other line, but it's basically the Portland Railroad. And eventually, he settled in the Notch, built his own little cabin, and then he was basically like the first tourist attraction. So he would put signs up by the um, the, the train depot in Crawford Notch, and he would say, "Come visit English Jack," and he would sell, I think, postcards for tourists. But his big thing was he would make beer. Yeah. And you could go, after you got off the train, you could go to the first, you go to the ship and you'd have your beer. So it was like a, so it's uh, pretty cool. Like trail magic for through trainers. I think what that always is, is or- yeah. Oregon. Right? Port- I, I don't, th- Port- I, I don't think Oregon? so. It's something else. I was reading, 
Uh, I'll put it in the show notes. It's 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 something else. It's not Oregon. Huh. Um, but this guy, he used to make beer out of like roots and stuff. Stephen, have you ever made beer using roots? Uh, no, I haven't. But yeah, lots of lots of beer was used or made with like ginger root or um, maple syrup. I was actually watching a video the other day, like Civil War rations. Maple syrup was included as maple molasses, so that so that the guys could make their own beer. Yeah, yeah. So my my guess wow. is that he was probably doing something similar, but his um his basically his deal was that he would I think hunt during like the fall and then sort of hunker down in the winter and then during the tourist season. He would be brewing and, and getting as many people to visit his house, which was called the ship, as he could. And um, he also he wrote a book. So I'm gonna I'll actually attach the link to the book um, in the show notes. But it tells his whole life story. So when he was like 12 years old, his parents died. So he's like walking on the docks in England, and he meets this young girl. The young girl is like, "I'm lost. I can't find my dad." And English Jack was like, I'm lost. I have no parents. So she took him to meet her father. Her father, his name was Bill, was a captain on a ship. He took English Jack and taught him how to be a sailor. And unfortunately, they got shipwrecked years later. Bill died. Jack actually came back. And the dying wish for Bill was to take care of my daughter, whose name was Mary, and and, and Bill's wife. So English Jack gets back to England. He sees Mary. She's older now. He falls in love with her. So he takes the rest of his money and he says, I'm going to send you to school for a year so you can finish school and then we're going to get married. Unfortunately, the wife had died. So Mary was all on her own. So basically, at first, Mary saved Jack. Then Jack's father saved, you know, Jack's father died and Jack was able to save Mary. Jack went off to do another sailing deal to get money so that he could marry Mary. And by the time he got back, she had died of some illness in school. Mm-hmm. So this guy had like the worst life ever um, or the worst luck ever. But eventually he made his way over to the U.S. because he was like, I can't stay here anymore because I miss my Mary. He made his way to the U.S. and he was working on the railroads, came up to Crawford Notch, and he became like this sort of legendary guy known as the Hermit of Crawford Notch. How did you discover this? Um, I actually, I got to give credit to, I was listening to a podcast, as a matter of fact, so I'll give a shout oh, out shame. to this crew. Shame. Um, <laughs> it's, the, the yeah, it's actually a good podcast. It's called <laughs> New England Legends, ah. and they did a segment on it, and then I, I just did a little bit of research, but this guy, he spent like a lot of winters in Crawford Notch. Eventually, he got older, and he moved in with a family in, in, in uh, Twins to... Um, in the, you know Twins County or Twins I don't know what's the name of the town Twins Twin Mountain Twin Mountain Twin Mountain yeah yeah so he moved up there with like this family that hosted him for years and there's photos online and the guy looks like a, a real like interesting character so hmm. he was the first guy to do brewing and beer in the in the White Mountains that's fascinating so I do know a little bit about his uh, nickname is there any information about how he got that name Jack Vile V I A L <sighs> I don't know. I, I think that that was just his name. And then the whole deal with him being a hermit was he was apparently pretty outgoing. So I think it was a whole like tourist thing. Huh. So I think he was like a very early version of um, Steve the Wolfman that you get at, at, at Clark's Trading Post. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Steve. 
<laughs> an early version yeah, of Steve. Well, yeah, Steve too. <laughs> yeah. So, One of the same. It's possible. Yeah. yeah but um, <laughs> I wanted to give a little bit of White Mountain history to talk about like the, the first brewer and um, – you know, even though this guy was labeled as a hermit, he's not really a hermit. We have to, uh, we're going to do an episode at some point. We got to do an episode on that hermit guy that was a real hermit up in Maine. Mm. I think it was the the North Pond or South Pond hermit. We'll, we'll do a show on him. That, that guy's an interesting character, but yeah. English Jack. Mm-hmm. Awesome story. It's good stuff. His, the history around here is really neat. Yeah, yeah, it is, and we'll keep we'll keep throwing some stuff in as we as we get through. I gotten some feedback. People like the history segment, so mm-hmm. all right, all right. So tonight, um, we're happy to introduce our very first sponsor. So um, we're here with Reckless Brewing. Um, so we're excited to sit down with Stephen Rodriguez, who is a uh, um, representing Reckless, um, and he also volunteers his time with the Pemi Search and Rescue Team. So. I have a lot of questions about brewing and beer in general, and I'm sure that you know, Stephen has all the answers for us. Um, so we're excited to, uh, to start the show off with that segment. And then later in the show, we're going to be joined by um, Stomp's friend Brad, who was part of a recent rescue that occurred near Franconia Falls. And Brad was hiking and came upon a seriously injured gentleman and was able to activate his emergency beacon. So we're going to ask him about that experience. Um, and then we're also going to... Um, you know, talk a little bit more just about general hiking with Brad. So I'm uh, very excited to talk about uh, brewing and, and um, search and rescue tonight. So um, we'll, we'll get going here. So I'm Mike. And I'm Stomp. Let's get started. Very good, Stomp. Hey, Mike, what are you drinking tonight? Uh, I'm not drinking anything yet. I'm waiting to get my beer <laughs> shipment, um, or I'm waiting to go buy some beer from Reckless Brewing. So I'm going to talk to Steven later in the show to find out where I can get some. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, that's very coy. <laughs> Yes. Well, somebody uh, put a growler in the back of the bed of my truck last night, so I'm actually drinking my favorite stout in New England, if not the world. It's a carryout stout, and we'll get into that for sure. So uh, that is a reckless brew. And um, Steve, you were the mastermind behind that, right? Pretty much? Yeah, I was. Yeah. It was the uh, perfect, it was a perfect combination of my uh, my favorite job and my favorite hobby. Yeah. <laughs> Favorite hobby being? Um, well, hiking, but I guess more specifically, search and rescue, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and what are you drinking tonight, my friend? Uh, I'm drinking the same thing. I, I brought home a growler of the carryout stuff for myself. Mm, so good, so good. Steven Rodriguez is here. I have known Steve for what now? Probably like four years, Steve? About three or four years? Uh, yeah, I've been going on four years, yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. we've um, basically shared... A lot of trail time together on different missions throughout the whites, and um, when you spend that much time on trail with people, you get to chat about things, and we discovered, um, you know, different things about each other, and um, the fact that Steve is into brewing and just EDM music, and I'm a big EDM fan, and some of these conversations started way back, like in terms of maybe like, hey, how about doing some EDM at Reckless and things like that? So there was like these early seeds of um, trying to do some things at Reckless or um, whatever, but it never panned out. Sure enough, this podcast seemed to have maybe opened some doors. And um, recently we started doing some research about sponsors and this and that. And I believe I reached out to you and said, hey, Steve, what do you think about this idea? And um, that's what got the ball rolling. And um, here we are. So Reckless 
from what I had always heard, um, the, the, the brewery itself is always very receptive to new artists and just uh, supportive of, you know, new talent. You know, I've been to the, the brewery itself and um, it seems like a very eclectic crowd and just their posting online. It just gives you this uh, vibrant sense of what's going on there. So um, it's really exciting to have Reckless actually step up and say, yeah, man, we love what you're doing and um, we'd love to support you and and we'll see what happens from there. But uh, so welcome aboard. First sponsor. Here we are. Yeah, to- totally glad. Yeah, I've, I've been wanting to get you performing at Reckless for a while. And, and you're right. We do we do all types of, of music there. Depending on the season is like, you know, they can do three or four different nights where they're going to have music. And, and it's a huge range, you know, whether it's just acoustic or last summer or the summer before we used to have like a bunch of punk bands come there was this one band where the the lead vocalist would like spit in his bass guitarist face they were like they were really hardcore so we kind of we kind of run the gamut and then we do trivia on thursdays so awesome wait a minute wait a minute hold on hold on Stephen. i got questions here so so this is a punk band so the bass the, the lead singer spit in the bass player's Face? Yeah, I didn't see this happen, but uh, I heard about it from from Ian, who's our one of our owners and our head brewer. It's like his favorite local band. Yeah. I don't think they're a band anymore, but um, I would think not. They yeah, probably got into a fight. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So, I gotta, uh, you know, I gotta find out the name of this band later, but we don't we don't want to expose them yet. But that's I'll, I'll message it to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's very <laughs> interesting. Oh man, that's too funny. Can you tell us a little bit about? Um, First, let's start with uh, Reckless. Tell us a little bit about the brewery and how you got involved and just a little bit of history there. Reckless opened in 2016 on a back street in Bethlehem. Ian and Marlena, who are the uh, the owners, they were brewing in their shed in the backyard. Same Same location? And they would serve... No, different location, uh, just down the street, like a half mile or so down the street from where they are now. Mm-hmm. Um, they would open up. They'd open up on like weekend nights, and they'd ser- uh, sell growlers and they could sell tasters. I started out as a customer. You know, I was there the first night they opened, filled my growler, walked down the driveway, turned around, walked back up. I had to buy a T-shirt. Ian Ian made a joke that I was their first repeat customer, <laughs> and uh, we were fast friends after that. You know, I'd come and hang out, drink beer, got to know them. Then less than a year later, it, it got a really great reception. Mm-hmm. So they decided they needed a bigger space. They bought this place down on Main Street. And at the time I was working doing carpentry and woodworking and they asked if I wanted to come and help renovate. So I started doing that nights and weekends. And then the job started to wrap up and Ian said, hey, you and I work really well together. We get along. Why don't you come on and I'll teach you how to brew? And that kind of started everything for me. So it's been a few years now. It's like you guys are rocking and rolling. You have a full menu. Place is always packed. We have a, a series of questions. I think, Mike, you're going to run through some of these questions. But um, one of the questions I do want to hit on is how you guys fared over the last year and a half. We got to touch upon that because that's an interesting side story, too. Yeah, it was um, it was touch and go at first. You know, nobody really knew it was going to happen. The uh, the brewery closed. I think they closed doors for a little while. I was I was in a position where I was like, where I told where I told them I said I, I don't really need to work right now. I can go home. I'd rather give my time to somebody else. 
So they were doing takeout and delivery, just enough to keep the doors open, really, mm-hmm. keep a few people employed. As soon as as soon as we were able to open our doors again, you know, everything just came flooding back in. Beer was selling faster than we could make it. We started distributing around the same time. Mm-hmm. We started selling cans around the state, which was a really good source of revenue for us. We've already been able to upgrade our canning system just because of the the demand. So during the whole lockdown at first, it was a little touch and go, but the quote unquote aftermath, the, the, it's been a big jump. There's been, there's been a lot of demand. Now you're brewing uh, or your, your distribution, is it strictly New Hampshire or are you guys wider into different States? Yeah. Right now, I, I don't know a whole lot about the, the legal side of it, but I know that because of our licensing, we're not able to self distribute outside of the state of New Hampshire. Right. But we can distribute anywhere in New Hampshire. And so Jules is our, our distributor at the brewery and works super hard. She drives all over the place, making deals, making calls, getting our beer wherever people will take it. Mm-hmm. And uh, really knocking it out of the park. We're, we're pretty far flung now. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, and I'll um I'll get the list of um locations where you can um where, where the audience can go to pick up some some product. I definitely want to find out. Like I'm in the North Conway area most of the time, so I'll find, I'm sure there's got to be some some locations there. But I'll I'll post that info on in the show notes when um when we when we push the show out. Totally. Yeah, I know right off the top of my head, right at Grant's over there on Hurricane Mountain Road. Oh yeah. I can go there. Um, so how long, so when you were doing, so you were doing carpentry and then you transitioned into um, sort of apprenticing on, on brewing, right. how long did it take you to, to train to, to get up to speed where you feel like you could start making your own product? Yeah, it, it, it took me, well, Ian, Ian's a really good teacher. Mm-hmm. Ian's a really good teacher. And um, it's really just a guess. I have a pretty bad memory, but I think it took probably, it was less than a year until I started, you know, actually brewing. It's kind of like the difference between knowing how to drive a car and knowing how a combustion engine works. Yeah. You know, you can drive before you know exactly what you're doing. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so, so I was to the point where I could drive the car after like six or eight months, something like that. Yeah. Now, do you have like a... um do you have like a particular type of beer that you are better at making than others or you did did he try to train you across all, all different types of beer? When when Reckless first opened, we pretty much did exclusively like American ale styles, you know, a lot of IPAs, some stouts, some porters, pale ales. And it wasn't until a little bit later in in the brewery's development that we started to branch out and do some some lager styles, some European styles. We we still brew one beer today. It's a Kolsch, uh, you know, like a German style mm-hmm. that that we call culture shock because it was shocking that we finally started brewing something other than American ales. Mm-hmm. Nice. Now, were you uh, before you got into uh, working with Reckless? Were you a uh, uh, in, into beer and, and I call them beer snobs. Were you like deep into sort of the, the 
craft brewing culture? Um, I wasn't I wasn't deep. I was dipping my toes in the water. <laughs> you know, I, I, I started deciding that I wasn't going to buy beer from away as often. I was going to try to drink local. And a former teacher of mine actually tipped me off to a Facebook post saying that, hey, there's a brewery opening up in Bethlehem. And I started following it after that. Then after I got involved, yeah, then I then I guess I got pretty deep into it. Yeah, it's it's interesting how you got hired too. So I'm in my my day job. I'm in recruiting, so I think about hiring quite a bit. So you you know you weren't knocking on doors trying to apply to be you know an employee at a brewery. You were basically went there as a customer, started a relationship, ended up finding out that you know there was a need there to do some other work, and then through you know your 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 work ethic and and the relationship you continue to build the opportunity opened up for you that you know otherwise you probably you know you if you were going to just put your resume in for for different craft brewing companies it's it would have been a crapshoot for you to even find something right yeah i had no idea that it was really something i wanted to do until ian asked me and and you're absolutely right normally anybody with a resume like mine you know they they might have been asked to you know come and work in the warehouse or something like that it's a uh, since it's such a niche uh, field, you know, there's not a whole lot of opportunity, especially for somebody with no previous training. I got really, really lucky, I guess. Yeah, yeah. and it's it's interesting. So we and Stomp have talked about this a few times, but I sort of like, I was thinking about this show and I'm like, I feel like I'm a, a bit of a time traveler when it comes to um, drinking beer because I stopped drinking. I was in college in the 90s. I drank a ton of beer, but it was always like Bush Light and whatever crappy beer we could, we could find. And then I stopped drinking in the late 90s, early 2000s, and I just picked it up probably like three or four years ago. So for me, like my whole life, I was always just like pick between Coors Light, Bud Light, Bush Light. And now when you go to the, the liquor store, I started drinking IPAs and I do enjoy them. But can you talk a little bit about like what, what the hell happened in the 20 years that I stopped drinking that we went from these big breweries into everything being so so down to like um, small craft brewings, brewing companies? Yeah, the, um, the beer that was commercially available back then was really all, like you're saying, the Budweiser's, the Coors Light, they were all lagers. That's what all the big companies were making. So the, the other styles, you know, the IPAs and whatnot weren't, weren't really commercially available. So home brewers started, started brewing them themselves. Then the home brewers got really good at brewing them. Then the home brewers started selling it. People got into it and it, it kind of exploded from there. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting. Like it was, I, we talk about, you know, we do talk about beer at the beginning of most shows and, um, I'm always trying like new, new types of beer. So I'm excited to, to try reckless out, but I'm just kind of curious to get your take, but it is, it's, it's, I can't think of that many industries that have so significantly changed over the last 20 years. I mean, it's, it's crazy. The, the selection now, when you go into these liquor stores, um, I think, I think that social media probably has another adds another layer to it as well. Just kind of like hiking in the whites, you know, where whatever, 10 years ago, the trails were pretty much empty compared to they are now. But then Facebook came around, Instagram came around, everybody started seeing their friends out, you know, hiking the ridge or hiking Mount Wash. And they're like, oh, dang, I really want to do that. And I think the same mm-hmm. things happen with craft beer. People are people are seeing on Facebook all these really cool brews, all these really cool breweries their friends are drinking all this fancy stuff and uh, they want to get into it. And, and it's really easy to find good beer now. 
because there's so many craft breweries and because it's so prevalent on social media? Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, it's it's been an interesting uh, journey back into drinking for me, so I'm enjoying it. I, but I'm only like one beer a night. That's about that's about my max. I don't get I don't get too crazy. I'm not going to be spitting in anybody's face. I don't think. <laughs> nice. So now, um, so Stephen, with the with the hiking angle, have you have you been hiking for a long time? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I I grew up hiking. I grew up in the area, so my my parents used to take us up to. Sugarloaf, Zealand Falls, Willard, Lonesome Lake, all that stuff. And in high school, I was on the, we had an outing club where we'd do hikes every now and again. Went away from home for a couple of years, came back and just got right back into hiking. Have you ever needed any uh, any potential rescues, any, any close calls? The closest I think I ever was was last winter out in the Randolph Town Forest. I planned a, a pretty decent loop out by Pond of Safety. And in the winter out there, it's not it's not super well traveled, so I was walking through pretty deep snow. And I got to a point after the Pond of Safety, I was, I was like 70% of the way through my loop, and I couldn't find the next blaze. So I just kind of would walk back to my blaze, pick a different line, and try to find try to find the next one. And, and there was a good period of time where I, I couldn't find it. And I was walking through like really deep snow. And I thought, well, gosh, I have to either follow my tracks all the way back or I have to find this next blaze. I, I started to get a little bit worried, but of course, eventually found it under a, under a pine bough and continued on my way. Nice. Now, I was just out there. I saw I just did the ice gulch loop. So that's the same. You're talking about um, that's the same area, right? Yeah, I think it's on the other side of the of the Randolph Town Forest. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you weren't doing the ice gulch in the winter, were you? No, I. Uh, I was. It's funny. I was actually listening to the episode where you're talking about the ice gulch, and and I'm and I'm like, well, out there this weekend. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely worth it. But I'm just trying to imagine like doing that in winter. Stomp. That may be an adventure. We'll have to try. Mm. I don't think too many people get out there. Oh yeah, absolutely up to it for sure. So, Stephen, when did you get into uh, search and rescue? It was. Hmm. It must have been shortly before I went on at Reckless. I, um, you know, in high school, being a hiker and whatnot, I would always read about search and rescue. Or not always. I would I would sometimes read about search and rescue events in like the newspaper or something. This was before Facebook and and all that stuff and uh, Northwoods Law. Yeah. <laughs> so so it was few and far between when I when I would hear the stories. So it, it kind of made search and rescue seem like this this group of backwoods elites. That's that's and how I fell into it. Same thing, just the media yeah. stories and like who are these epic, like exactly, yeah, yeah, amazing, like Marvel superheroes. It was it was so mysterious. It was so drawing, and I and I happened to have a mutual friend of um, Gordy's. Gordy's, uh, I think, one of the founding members of Pemi. Mm-hmm. So I happened to casually mention interest one day to this mutual friend who said, oh, hey, I'll throw you this guy's email address. I corresponded with Gordy for a little while, and then I signed up and joined the team. And the rest is history. Very cool. Yeah. Now, were you on before Stomp joined? Uh, no. Stomp was there when I joined. Uh, I'm not sure so how long, but... You must have been disappointed thinking you're going to deal with all these elite people and you need Stomp. 
he's a, he's an impressive looking dude. No, I, I was like, shit, can I keep up with this guy? Yeah, exactly. Hates and we know that's not so. the case, right? You I, you pull past me every time we're on the trail. I think the last time was Georgiana Falls, right? That was when oh, my geez. hip was like really aching, and this dude blasts yeah, past man. me like 100 miles yeah, an hour. You got to cut yourself slack with your hip, man. <laughs> now, um, as far as hiking goes, are you like so? I'm, I'm admittedly, I'm a big list geek, and I'm, I'm always like tracking my, uh, my progress against the the White Mountain Guide or redlining or whatever you want to call it. So, um, do you, are you into that level of hiking, or you just kind of do what you want to do? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm conscious of things like the lists, but I, I don't keep track of it very well. You know, I did a whole lot of repeats before I finally finished my 48. Um, like you said, I kind of just did what I wanted to. After that, I'm I'm really more interested in in backpacking. You know, spending the night, doing mm, a couple yeah. of days if I can, whenever my schedule allows. As far as you know, long term, do you think that you'll ever do any of the sort of the long trails through hiking? You know, long, um, Appalachian Trail, CDT, anything like that. I always thought that I would, but then last summer I did the Coas Trail. It took me nine, almost 10 days. And for a little less than half of it, I did it with friends. So it was, it was nice, you know, a nice shared experience. But the half that I spent alone wasn't as fun. So I, I don't think I could spend four, five, six months on the trail. I'm, I'm happy with a week, five days, something like that. Yeah, that's right. something I've always been curious about because I haven't really ever done anything more than like two nights. Um, and the Kohos Trail has got to be the perfect trail to kind of test yourself out because it's just at that level where it's long enough where you're like, all right, I'm going to get a real taste of this, but it's not so long that it's insane. So, um, Yeah, man, you got you to try the Kohos Trail. It's awesome. Yeah, I was up at I was on Nash Stream. I was in Nash Stream Forest um, two weekends ago. I did the Sugarloaf. I can't remember if I covered this in the podcast. If I, I won't get into too many details, but I think I got to do some updates on hiking. But um, I love that area, like the Nash Stream Forest and like the Percy Peaks area, and that whole hiking. But behind Percy Peaks is is awesome. So yeah, and I've done Kilkenny, so I've done like big sections of it. But I do. It is interesting to me to maybe string together the whole whole hike at some point. The, those are my favorite parts. Kilkenny Ridge up into Nash Stream Forest. At some point after Nash Stream, there's there's like a day, a solid day, maybe two, where you're walking on like ATV trails. I wasn't crazy about that. But hmm. yeah, the, the, the parts that you mentioned, those are my favorite. Yeah, and I know I just saw that they put out a um, an announcement that they're, they're putting out new, um, I think, maps and mileage a mileage book for the Kohos Trail. So I think it's, I think the days of that thing being like a, a, a hidden gem are, are going to be in the past because the I, I, more and more people are hearing about it. We're clearly not helping. So sorry. You're right. Nobby just finished it too. <laughs> I, uh, I did grip my teeth a little bit when you were blowing up that stealth site on Kilkenny Ridge Trail. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But I don't think anybody's going to, um, yeah, you, know, you, you got to be savvy to find it. So hopefully, no one will no one will figure it out. But honestly, to get out there is hard because you got to go through the weeks. Although you can get it, you can get at it from Cabot, but hopefully, not too many people will go through there. Yeah, and there's really not a lot of water out there until you hit that yeah. spot. Yeah, exactly. All right, perfect. So I did want to talk a little bit about um, just sort of the environment at Reckless. So you talked about 
um, you know, live live music and whatnot. But what's the what's the environment like there? If you you know, is it dog friendly? Is it kid friendly? You know, what's a typical night there? Is it more of a restaurant or is it more of a sort of a chill hangout place? Yeah, we've it's we've really got something for everybody. We do do dogs outside. We've got a lot of outdoor seating. There's a couple of big decks. We've got seating in the garden. We have a field next door. We have cornhole and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, it's a blast. So, you know, whether you're just getting off the golf course or you're just getting off the Franconia Ridge or you're taking the kids out for a bite to eat, a lot of people say that the food is just as good as the beer. Depends on which department you ask. But but there, there really is something for everybody. It's not... It's not exclusive. Very welcoming course. It's really cozy. You know, there's a lot of wood and stuff inside. The mm. the mood lighting. You know, what's a brewery without low hanging Edison bulbs? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and I always like. I, I I'm so bad about like. I always just sort of think in terms of like North Conway and um, and Lincoln in terms of like where I'm going to go after my hikes and I do and I'm a masshole so I don't have like probably the the geographic knowledge as 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 a New Hampshire person would have um, but I I always sort of think about those two areas but it's definitely worth it to get out um, to different locations and you know I'm excited to to go check it out and I'm you know really happy that you guys were able to join us tonight yeah yeah i appreciate it yeah we're, we're really only 10 or 15 minutes from franconia notch so if you're in that area it's it's not it's not too far out of the way yeah exactly so stomp you um so Stephen, I'll, I'll let you in on a little secret here so i usually will drink beer on these shows and then stomp is is like he doesn't like ipas Oof. and he's always drinking margaritas <laughs> so but he does he seems like he likes the stuff but like can oh, you yeah. sell him like can you sell him to try another IPA? Like he apparently he got sick on an IPA when he was like a young person, and he doesn't want want to try one. But it's true. We got to get him into IPA somehow. What what do you, what's the advice for for converting him? Yeah, I'm I'm really gonna let the beer speak for itself. Uh, Stop. Oh. Do my best to get you some clouded judgment. We okay. we brew that specifically to to be sweeter rather than bitter. Yeah, a lot of these big hoppy ipas you know they kind of stick to your tongue mm-hmm. and uh and it doesn't doesn't feel very good if you don't like that bitter taste but we we try to utilize uh the hop in a different way where it's sweeter and fruity instead of bitter and piney mm-hmm. so i have a question i'm curious and i don't really know sometimes i've had double ipas and sometimes I have, is a double ipa going to typically be more that bitter taste or does it does it matter? Are there other factors that matter there? Well, usually a, a double IPA refers to the alcohol content. So, in order to make the the higher alcohol more palatable, you'll use more hops to balance out the flavor. Okay. So instead of instead of drinking, you know, something that tastes really uh, really alcoholic, it'll. It'll be a little bit more balanced. It'll have some more hop flavor in it. So, so yes, it usually has more hop flavor. It doesn't necessarily need to be bitter hop flavor. Yeah, because I, I like the smoother IPAs, and I don't like as much bitter, although I'm getting used to it. Um, but I'm trying to – what should I look for if I'm looking for a smoother IPA? Are there any advertising tricks that, that you can figure out, or you just have to try them and see? The If it's if it's advertised as a New England IPA, then it's probably going to be less bitter. Okay. Um, like a West Coast IPA is – 
is usually something that's going to be a little bit more bitter, but the New England style, we try to give it a bigger mouthfeel and, and a sweeter flavor. Okay. And then your for reckless brands, what's your what would you? I know you had said one, but what are your recommendations for IPA? Yeah, it's it's really for me. It's tough to beat Clouded Judgment. That's that's taking over as as our as our flagship. We also have Pretentious Hopper, which used to be the top dog until until we started brewing Clouded. Hmm. So for IPAs, we've got those two that are that are very widely available, and then we have uh, some other ones that that you can find out in the world, but mostly they're just at the brewery. Cool. Now, when you when you go hiking, when you're not obviously on duty with uh, search and rescue, are you a summit beer type of guy? Yeah, yeah, I am <laughs> definitely. Yeah, this is a good time of the year for it. I haven't done a summit beer this this year yet, but I, I'm I think next hike I'm gonna I'm gonna break one out. Oh, yeah, in, in the wintertime, I'll do like a roadwalk beer on the way back. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, it's a little too cold. <laughs> Very cool. So, yeah, Stephen, this is this is great. Um, as far as the search and rescue piece of it goes, um, do you have anything? And I know it's you can't give out a lot of details and specifics about search and rescue, but um, are you somebody that, like Stomp will tell me, he's like, I'm just going to sit home and wait for the phone to ring because I want to do a search and rescue or – do you tend to show up on a lot of these? And, and if you do, do you have any that sort of stand out for you over the last few years that you've been involved in? Yeah, I, uh, I'm i not really able to sit around and wait for them. But luckily, my my job is flexible enough that if I'm at work and I get my stuff done, I always have my bag on me. I'm right there in Bethlehem, just a few minutes from the notch. So I can get up and go. Or if I'm at home... As long as I haven't had a beer, I'm I'm always willing to get up and go, whether it's, you know, whether it's three o'clock or 11 o'clock or somewhere in between. Um, as far as standouts go, I mean, this week was pretty crazy. I I have one. <laughs> you have one? I want to hear yeah. it. Yeah. Well, w- with you and I, actually. That's oh, worth... I think I know what you're talking about. Oh, yeah. Uh, go you first. Well, I, I'm going to guess that you're talking about Garfield. Uh, no, the, the overnight bushwhack slash search down Baker river. Like we, we started at, I don't know, I don't know, 10, 11 o'clock at night. And there were two teams on either side of the Baker from ravine lodge, all the, we had maybe four miles to cover and Steven, myself and another, um, individual, uh, basically just cleared the left side closest to, uh, what is it? Route 112. No wait, that's one eighteen, one eighteen. Yeah, I don't remember from from Lincoln down towards yeah. Benton there. Yeah, but but this one moment really stands out to me. We're just it's pitch black. We're we're yelling this kid's name. It's two three in the morning, and all of a sudden we come upon this ghost of a bridge that is actually running, not perpendicular but parallel to the river. And it had, I don't know how old that thing was, but you can imagine that this old bridge must have just got washed out and just drifted down the Baker for X amount of miles or whatever. But yeah, it was really neat. That was quite a long night. Definitely saw the sunrise. This was, was this the Dartmouth student? Yep. 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 Okay. So I actually, I want to ask Stephen a question about this one then. So when we did an episode on that show, um, Stomp, I don't know if it was Stomp or something. 
the kid disappeared and you know the, you, apparently stomp feels like you guys covered that whole area and it was impossible that you didn't see him and he thinks that aliens abducted that kid so i wanted to find out from you if you feel like it's possible that aliens may have abducted this kid <laughs> that's not my theory <laughs> well i heard anecdotally that he looked down at his phone and by the time he looked back up he was off the trail and had already you know gotten himself lost so i think it's totally possible he could have gotten sucked into his cell phone <laughs> nice <laughs> and and stop one thing you forget to mention is that this search that we engaged on until the early hours of the morning was mm. directly after a carryout on welch dickey right right it was a super long day yeah and this is me in the confessional i i feel like i let you guys down because i was sort of like i was just the person in you know charge of that little team but i was wiped and by the end of it i was just like man i i gotta get out of here man i don't think we're gonna find this kid here or whatever i was just exhausted and of course you have other members on the other side of the team like smoking further down <laughs> like blazing it so it was a long tough night yeah a lot of people a lot of people stayed the night in the lodge i i ended up going home i, I came back the next morning of course but yeah i'm right there with you man i mean it was hard you know we put a we put a long day in on welsh dickey and then we went and we really did some serious bushwhacking that night, yeah. all through the night. And it was fairly high water, you know, being early spring. Yeah, I do remember. Yep, it was spring. There was a lot of runoff. Yeah, it was crazy out there. I think we tried to cross the river a couple times, and we had to go around. Just couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Well, you guys are heroes. I was sleeping in my bed. And Stomp, if you didn't let somebody down, you would have let me down. So just keep <laughs> doing what you're doing. <laughs> Well, this is great. I do have a couple questions for you, though, Steve. Um, we've had brief discussions over the over the phone about um, how the creative process just runs the same through everybody, whether you're an audio producer or a writer or a beer a brewer. Um, you know, for myself, it's like I'll I'll produce a, an audio clip and just refine it over and over and over again. And you know, whether you're you know fine tuning the clay on a sculpture, whatever. Long story short, what is your creative process when it comes to your particular recipes for the beer? Yeah. When when I'm creating a beer, usually what I like to do is I like to start with with an ingredient that interests me and build something around that. So I'll pick I'll pick a style and then I'll pick an ingredient that I like and I'll kind of decide what complements that. And how to build it out into something. So the carry out, for example, I, I used um, this roasted wheat called midnight wheat. Mm-hmm. So you don't need a whole lot of it to give it that really dark color. How many versions of uh, carry out did you have to create? Ooh, that's that's a good question. See, that's what I'm interested in. It. Yeah, that's what I'm interested in. Like uh, the refining process. Yeah, it it started out pretty close to how I wanted it. The the changes were really small. And especially when you're putting out a product that's supposed to be consistent, you mm-hmm. can't really make big changes. It's got to be really incremental. Yeah. So when we start out with a new recipe, no matter what it is, we, we brew it to, to the smallest capacity that we can. So we'll do like a half batch or something like that. Mm-hmm. Then we'll sit down as a team. We'll talk about what we like, what we don't like, and we'll figure out what we need to change. And we just go through really small changes to get to where the carryout stout is now. 
it's just a guess, but I think it probably took less than less than half a dozen, probably four or five tries <laughs> to get <laughs> to the point where we were really happy with it. That's awesome. And I think we got lucky because some, some of them we do more, some of them we do less. Another question I have is just really briefly, um, what's the naming process? Because I love Reckless's choice of names. How does that all work with you guys? That's, That's a good one, Stomp. It's, it's really, <laughs> we'll, we'll sit down at the end of a shift and have a beer. A lot of the time, it will be the beer that we're trying to name <laughs> because uh, I, I am best at naming beers when I have it in my hand. Um, you know, sometimes it'll be something topical or something to do with the season that we're in. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we always try to make it fun, try to make it funny. It's awesome. You know, Sometimes I, the, a little tiny. Yeah, like the whole branding is perfect. You know, reckless. You know, get it in your mouth. All, just it, It's consistent and it's really not provocative, but it's engaging. You know, it's just awesome branding. I love what you guys are doing. Yeah, we try to walk the line. Yeah, exactly. As far as branding goes, one thing I do want to say is is something we haven't mentioned that every every time we brew the carryout stout, we make a, a donation to Pemi Search and Rescue. Mm-hmm. So if uh, if you're around and you and you see cans, or if you come to the brewery and you see it on tap, the more you drink it, the more we can brew it, and the more we brew it, the more we're able to donate. Yeah, that's that's really fantastic. All right, so like I said, I'm going to put uh, the locations where you can pick up um, your your beers um, across the state, and the order to the audience is to buy carryout stout so that Pemi Search and Rescue gets more money. So make it happen, audience. <laughs> so we'll put up um, all the website information, but how do we get a hold of you guys on the web? We're pretty active on Facebook and Instagram. If you just search Reckless Brewing, it's spelled phonetically. So mm-hmm. it's R-E-K-L-I-S. Got it. And uh, that's a good place to start. Awesome. And we're right, in, uh, we're right in downtown Bethlehem. Again, easy to find. You can't miss it. Okay. All right, stop. Next time we go hiking, you're taking me out. It's on you. <laughs> a date. It's a date? Yeah. yeah. All right. First date with <laughs> really Mike and Stomp. Garfield and Gale. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's a good. So we're gonna hike Garfield and Gilehead, and then uh, hit the brewery, and yep. you're paying. <laughs> All right. Well, Stephen, thanks again so much, and um, we'll be talking more about Reckless um, in in future episodes. Um, but I think we got to transition into talking to Brad next. Stomp. Anything else before we close out with Stephen? No, we're good. Steve, thank you so much. This is really good chat. Yeah, thank you guys. It was a lot of fun. Mike, it was really nice to meet you. Yeah, yeah, great meeting you, and hopefully we'll uh, we'll get out and do a little bit of hiking. Yeah, sounds good to me. Sounds good to me. Slasher's hiking topic of the week. All right, Stomp. So we're here with our our friend Brad here, and there, you know, we 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 brought Brad on to cover a story about a recent rescue on Franconia Falls. So I don't have a lot of detail on this one. So I think maybe if I can hand it over to you, and you you can start this and then introduce Brad. Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate uh, Brad coming on. Our history goes back probably to let me think 2017, yep. if I remember correctly. I was hiking up towards the captain with a good friend Tom Becker for an overnight in mid-December, and uh, the forecast was 
roughly about minus 10 base temperature, and I had my three-season tent. <laughs> and I had a great idea to try to see if my three-season tent could weather the conditions and everything else. And uh, long story short, Brad happened to pass me on a snowmobile, and he... He, after the fact, sent me a message saying, hey, I saw you, <clears throat> excuse me, I saw you walking up trail. And uh, then from there, I was like shameless and said, hey, next time, maybe pick us up. <laughs> yeah. So that, that started our story of uh, communication. I think from there, he tapped into some of the EDM mixes I was doing and stuff at the time. So we've just been chatting off and on um, since then. Mm, so it's sort of a funny story. Yep. So for the audience's purposes, I don't think we've ever really talked about this, but the the captain is a peak that is between, and I don't think a lot of people know about it, Thank but God. it's a peak between the Hancocks and Carrigan. And for Stomp, it was like his white whale for like- It is. For what, it about is. two years you chased that thing? So it's yep. it, there's no trails to it. It's like this ridiculously wooded summit and crazy bushwhackers do it and- Stomp, uh, what did you, you try to do it like two, three times before you made it up there? Um, well, the the midwinter ascent was a, a bailout because, you know, my partner uh, lost a microspike. Um, and by the way, we should talk about microspike actually as a uh, trail name at some point soon. Yep. <laughs> but, but moving on. Yeah, so that was... That was the first attempt, and the second attempt was a solo that I tried, and then I actually made it up to the summit by myself, single-day solo, um, and I've gone up since another two times, I believe, yeah. So, it, it's my favorite place. It's just very remote, and it's a jigsaw puzzle of uh, strainer brooks and dense, dense vegetation, and uh, it's just a blast. So if you love getting scratched up and lost, it, this is the place. Yeah, and I think our friends Keith and Andy d- hiked that recently. So we may we may want to get them get in touch with them and see if we can do a captain segment. But but anyway, Brad, that's so you you were the smart one on a snowmobile in that area. <laughs> <laughs> yes, at that time. Yeah, so I, I started following Brad and. Um, you know he's he's obviously the quintessential snowmobiler. I I would assume you've been all over the state, right, New Hampshire? Yeah, I ride Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine. Yeah. Yeah, you've got the the map, the network down pat, and then what I've witnessed over the last several months is just this transition into um, just epic hiker and just crushing all the peaks. And the the most impressive thing about that is somewhere in between me just discovering you and watching your your progression was this this medical uh situation where you've dealt with some issues do you want to touch upon that briefly well stop before um before you guys get into that piece of it brad i'm curious because i don't cover like i basically track all these media news stories around hikers that get injured and need rescues but one of the things we've never talked about on the show before is that i've i've seen you know, there hasn't been a huge increase in hiker incidents over the last few years. It stayed pretty steady, but I feel like the um, the SUV injury in in enforcement issues in New Hampshire have have increased quite a bit, and I feel like the snowmobile accidents have as well. Have you? <laughs> do you have any sort of take on that? About like, has it been 
an uptick in, in issues with snowmobiles riding around New Hampshire, or has it always been sort of a, a pretty common incident that, or situation that there's a lot of incidents? Yeah, so I mean, I'm new to the New Hampshire area, you know, within the last four years, but within the last four years, there's been a huge, I would think a big uptick in accidents or violations or stuff like that, just with the different people now getting into it, not really understanding. And um, the rental division that, you know, operates around Bartlett and in Twin Mountain, um, there's been a lot of accidents that involve those rental sleds and that with people that ride every weekend and it's just, you know, you got to respect your side of the road. And that's something that I think we need to start driving home, you know, when they rent the sled, it's just like being on a road. You need to stay on the left or the right, whatever side you're supposed to be on. Yeah. Yeah. I did like a, I think I, I did one snowmobile rental with my buddies uh, years ago up in the forks and, and one of them just flipped the snowmobile going like 50, 60 miles an hour, hit a bridge and, um, and that was it. The day was ruined, and I haven't got on one ever since. So I, I definitely respect them. But that's that's interesting. I think um, we'll have to have you back on when it gets a little colder, and we you have to give us a snowmobile one on one lesson. <laughs> <laughs> I ride a lot. I got seventeen hundred miles in this year, so pretty nice. good year for the low snow we had. Yeah, exactly. So back to your personal medical questions. There. Um, you're a person that deals with Crohn's colitis, correct? Correct. Yes, I have Crohn's. Yeah, and uh, on your Instagram, you're you're labeled Crohn's warrior, which is really cool. I latched onto that because my family members have history with that as well. So um, I think that's what really brought me um, focused on your story. It's that's not an easy thing to overcome and to deal with. And if you could just touch upon what you've experienced over the years, um, how it's impacted your athletics and your activities, that'd be fantastic. Yeah. So I was uh, diagnosed when I was, well, was, really was seven, but they thought I was lactose intolerant. Mm-hmm. Um, and really came about, you know, they kind of a little more research, a little more you know, medical advancement by the time I was 11 and a half and realized what Crohn's actually was. So at 11 and a half, I was diagnosed uh, with Crohn's. And since then, you know, I've, I've had surgery to remove part of my intestine, um, various medical drugs from, you know, now I'm on a cancer drug that failed as, that they, you know, call Humira. Mm-hmm. Um, so I take that and that's kind of been a huge game changer for me. It's kind of the first drug that I've had no side effects to, yeah. um, that I can take and has, you know, allowed me to not get morning nauseous anymore because of the restrictions that I have inside my small intestines, mm-hmm. um, and really put me into remission and allowed me to do the things I do now and, and train for, um, you know, I'm going for my first ultra marathon wow. out in Colorado, stuff like that. Well, that's fantastic. So it's kind of, it's been Big, big game changer. Yeah, that's incredible. So when I met you, where were you? You medically, were you stable or? Medically, I, I know back back in 2017, I was kind of just going into what would be a, a really bad flare that kind of changed the direction of the treatment that the doctors, I had to get a new doctor. Because mm-hmm. um, some, you know, you have to find what works for you. And some doctors, you know, here, this is what I use. And that same treatment doesn't work for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 2018, I was very sick. Um, I was back down. I lost, you know, 
20 pounds and was back to eating chicken and rice for three meals a day because that's the only thing my body could handle. Right, right. Yeah, and that's what I've seen in my family too. That's what I noticed was your transition to hiking and now you're just just crushing it everywhere. So how was that story? Yeah, so I've I always been a hiker, but with Crohn's, like I got limited. But since the Humera has taken over and I've um, stopped drinking and found a diet that absolutely just works for me and and you know i don't vary from that mm-hmm. sure i have no you know some oreos at nighttime that's not the greatest <laughs> but you got to have a cheat meal everywhere right. yeah uh, oreos that, you got to have the oreos yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah so like those three things combined have essentially made it that I, you know i don't want to say i don't have crohn's anymore because it doesn't go away but i have no no symptoms mm-hmm. and it's been a you know a really fun time you know, being able to go out and do 30 mile days or go with friends and just chill by the river after, you know, a two mile hike, whatever, you know, mix it up. 30 mile days of hiking or? Yeah, some Pemi, some, yeah, some Pemi's thrown in. Nice. Some, some uh, Prezi Traverses. Okay. So, so yeah, um, we have a rescue that we want to talk about tonight and we delayed it from a recent episode. Um, it was dated June 28th or June, June 27th, actually. And you were, hiking in the Pemi that day or what were you doing exactly on that day Sunday the 27th yeah uh Sunday me and one of my friends we were finishing up uh we were doing a half Pemi and stayed at out at Gio and then we're coming back down through the center um through that great I want to call it just the bug infested <laughs> oh no on the back side on Lincoln Woodside <laughs> um, gotcha so yeah Lincoln Brook all the way out Lincoln Brook, isn't that a lovely trail? Uh, let, let me just understand the route. So, did you you went up to the Bond Cliffs and then stayed at Quixote? That's correct. Yes, got it. And then came down to Thirteen Falls and then th- all the way through the center of the Pemi on Lincoln Brook. Correct. Yep. Got did you did you go up on Owl's Head or did you skip it? No, we skipped it because we had a dog with us and uh, it was really hot that day. So we made the smart decision to stay near the water so the dog could stay cool. Good call. Yeah, yeah. We're going to do another episode, but I just came back that way. Um, I, I did Owl's Head through the, via the Lincoln slide. So uh, that's a that's a cool area. You don't see a lot of crowds like north of, of the Owl's Head slide. So that must have been a, f- a fun little trip for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lincoln slide's awesome. All right. So, w- at what time of the day were you passing Franconia Falls? It was around two thirty. We uh, we took a break there so that the dog could cool down in the stream, uh, refill water before we get uh, ready to walk out that great walk that is Lincoln Woods. Um, so we were just, you know, sitting there having a snack, and kind of all of a sudden, some guy came running out of the woods saying that somebody's hurt and needs assistance. And that's kind of where it, it took off from there. What happened next? Did you follow them up or? Uh, he was came running out and, you know, he said somebody's hurt. They have a head injury. My immediate gut reaction was grab the first aid kit, grab my beacon and, you know, go back towards him. So I ran up, he, you know, he said he was all the way at the end of the falls. So I ran up. I actually ran past him thinking that I had to go to the end to where the pools are. But he was on the, what I want to call the like point four in where you have that rock face that comes down. Um, and he was there, met up with the group. His family was with him and kind of, you know, assessed the situation that was in front of me at that point. Okay. So I've never been there. So this is 
how, what 0. 0.4 0. 0.5 off of Lincoln Woods Road uh yeah i think it's i think it's 0. 0.5 because it's like a little over 0. 0.5 but the falls will start happening at like 0. 0.3 okay and then it kind of turns into pools and other little you know like side pools mm-hmm. yeah and it's it, just a little spur trail right before the bridge to get in the wilderness area and it has somewhat of a reputation as being fairly dangerous i guess yeah the rocks are super slippery there the couple <laughs> times i've been during the summer okay all right yeah i mean i think the deal with franconia falls is that it's i mean it's not super accessible so you can park at lincoln woods it's a three mile hike or a lot of people will bring like mountain bikes and you can get to the falls and it's it's a cool area right brad it's like it's you know when it's not running that hot there's plenty of spaces to sort of hang out and sit by the water or you know there's a couple of natural slides where you can get into the water so it's probably not so much a hiking destination as it is like a tourist destination like you'll see like hiking down lincoln woods you'll see these young people that are like, you know, they'll be carrying their towels and flip-flops and they're coming back from Franconia <laughs> Falls. So it's like, it's like, dude, you have no idea. I've been in the, you know, the Pemi wilderness for all day or an overnight. And then you see these people just sort of in their, their rubber duckies and their, their, uh, their towels having fun at the fall. So it is a little bit of a tourist place. Right. Yeah. I enjoy during the wintertime. It's a fun snowshoe to go in and then it, it freezes over pretty cool. And when you get the snow, it's a it's a cool looking falls, especially up way at the end, right where you have the I think the only trails end sign in all of the White Mountains that's actually posted. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. So you so basically they flagged you down. They say, oh, there's an injured guy. It's got a head injury. So you just basically just ran up the the spur trail, and you had been already hoofing it out there um, from from the Pemi. So when when do you actually find the victim? Uh, once I doubled back that, you know, I went, I went past and saw nobody else the minute you came up that crust hill. And then I doubled back and there was a group of people around a guy that was laying down and I was like, that's gotta be him. So I yelled over and said, Hey, is that guy hurt or is he all right? And they said, yeah, he's hurt. So I made my way across the little brook that's there. And, um, from that was between me and him and then got up and introduced myself and said who I was and what kind of experience I have on this side of the table and assess the whole situation like how hurt is he started asking him some questions kind of ran down the big what i call the big four mm-hmm. um and then you know talked to his family about what happened because he was out of it at that time he concussion was kind of relatively right there and couldn't remember the last 10 minutes mm-hmm. um so so what is the big four i need to know this now <laughs> Well, you guys probably know better, but assess the area for if there's any hazards to the people that are around him. Assess the victim for any major wounds that need treatment right away. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I like to assess, can he squeeze my fingers? Can he wiggle his toes? Does he have any body injuries? And then assess how the family's doing because sometimes the family actually makes it worse in my opinion you know if he's if they're crying and all this that he's only going to get worked up or she's going to get worked up more so those are the big four that i like to run down uh anytime i roll up to something that's like this so do you have certifications uh i used to be a wilderness first aid instructor nice um, for the ymca when i was younger Mm -hmm. um and then i have my wilderness first aid card Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of my friends are on search and rescue down in mass. So I've always been around them and helping them out. Awesome. So it's always, it's kind of always been right there that, you know, search and rescue is 
uh, thing I'm interested in. I just don't live anywhere close enough now to <laughs> be part of it. <laughs> you're, you're not alone. Yeah. 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 Unfortunately, so. there are a lot of people in that uh, situation. One other thing to point out about um, that particular area is there's zero cell phone connection. So there's no connectivity at all in Lincoln Woods. Correct. Yeah. And that's why I always carry the, my beacon. Uh, I have an in-reach um, as well as most of my friends have in-reaches. Uh, we find that in the whites, the in-reaches actually work a little bit better than the spots. Mm-hmm. Um, just, and that's the pure purpose that, you know, what was it? Five years ago, my mom for Christmas said, I'm getting you something that I know I can have peace of mind with when I'm out there either snowmobiling or hiking all through New England. And I said, okay, well, you know, after a little research and talking to my friends, they're like, the inReach is the way to go. You can text through it. So my mom ended up getting me one for Christmas and then I've had it since the same one. It's lasted, you know, the five years through all kinds of weather and I've never had an issue with it. It always communicates well. And, you know, sometimes if you're on like flume slide. What were you using beforehand? A spot? Uh, Before that, it was just a cell phone. (laughs) No, no, just a cell phone. My friends, one of my friends had a spot and, you know, it was just, okay, well, if somebody gets hurt, then we're not, we never, I used to not hike alone so much. Um, so it was always two of us or three of us. So it was like, all right, one person stays, the other person goes out until they get some kind of service. Well, you can't go wrong. I mean, you have, I mean, with the earlier spots, you have just generic messages that you can send out. Boop. I made it out. I need help, whatever. Um, in reach ups the game and lets you communicate full sentences, right? Am I correct on that? Yeah, full sentences, whatever. Mine's linked to my phone, so whatever I, whatever I type on my phone yeah. um, comes back out on the, on the inReach, and then that's what gets sent. Okay. This rescue at Franconia Falls went through Texas, and the other that, spot is yeah. Florida, okay. to my understanding. So, okay. Because that was the, the last time my buddy had to use it, it went through Florida, and those are the two spots that even uh, when we got back to the trailhead that the fishing game officer was like, you're through Texas and mm-hmm. you know, it's either Texas or Florida is the two that you go through. Right. So once they get that information, then they can connect to you. Did that happen on this? It did not happen on this. I spoke directly only to inReach okay. um, through that conversation. And within 20 minutes, the fishing game, uh, probably half an hour, the fishing game officer was there from the time I pushed SOS, which is about 15 minutes after I, got to the victim which is pretty damn quick so yep. let's back up a little bit so what was going through your head and when did you decide to send that call we ended up he was laying in the sun and he passed all the tests he could squeeze my fingers move his toes wasn't really complaining about neck pain back pain nothing like that mm-hmm. once i stood him up the minute that i stood him up he got nauseous and uh, really was weak on his feet so that's when I was like, all right, this, we're not making it three miles. We're going to need to have somebody, you know, come out here and with a side by side, or, yeah. you know, maybe we could get them across the river because you can drive the other side if a side by side isn't available. But I know normally the, they're always there. Um, so that's when I decided to push because we made it about 100 yards before he started to have some uh, other symptoms. Mm-hmm. So I was like, this, it's time to push. So, that's when I hit the button. And this was not a, he wasn't a, so much a normal hiker. He was more of a, a tourist just enjoying the falls. Is that? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. He was just out there just to, 
swim in the in the pools and you know relax for the day wow so they showed up pretty quick now what did the rescue team show up with did they have an atv or a a litter i mean uh at first it was just um the fish and game officer and then the i want to say he's the caretaker for franconia falls tent site yeah came over and then once we made contact he radioed back um to the chief at the parking lot and said, um, you know, we're going to need a side, the side by side and that side by side was already in the parking lot and he came out. So by the time that we made it to the bridge on Lincoln woods, that side by side was sitting there and we were able to put, um, the patient into the side by side and they took off towards the parking lot. End of story. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, they happen quick, especially when it comes to a head injury. It's like you want to make things happen fast. So that's that's a really neat story. Um, you got the message out quick. You responded quickly. Your previous experience really honed you into the situation and what had to be done. Um, I mean, I, we had conversations behind the scenes about your thoughts about inReach and I've had conversations about inReach versus spot and you know other means of communications and I just wanted to get a gauge of what percentage of people out there might be using inReach at the moment I mean some for some folks it may be cost prohibitive but um, what was your percentage take on how many people are using these devices out there at the moment I mean if you just look I think if you look at the the whites but and you kind of hold that to New England I think it's a lot smaller number I'd only say like maybe 5% based on you know you always kind of see them now that you have one mm-hmm. you kind of always see them when they're on other people's packs you know maybe some are packed away but it's kind of something that you look for when you're walking by somebody cuz they're always you know <laughs> up on your shoulder so they have satellite if they're on Yeah I see um I was actually surprised this weekend I was out. And I think it has to do with where you go to is I think when people are going out to like Owl's Head and they're in the middle of the PEMI, it's serious business because you're talking nine, 10 miles away from any any sort of rescue. So I saw more in reach. And I don't know, I can't tell the difference between an in reach or a spot by looking at it. I need to maybe do a little bit more homework on that. But we saw a fair number of people that had um, devices on their shoulders hiking this weekend. But it's... When I say fair number, I'm probably like closer to the 5% stomp. So it's not a huge number, but it's, it was enough for me to notice that there was a few people that, that had them, which I was, I see them more in the winter than I do in the summer. But I really, mm. especially because of the show, because God forbid I ever get in a rescue, I need, I probably need to have a beacon with me at, at some point. So I might just bite the bullet and buy one. Well, Mike, somebody like you, like if you see a problem and you can't communicate immediately, you're just going to run out. <laughs> to, to the trailhead in like split seconds. Yeah, so. yeah, I'll, I'll just trail run it. So. <laughs> just like Chris. Brad, so you're you from your perspective, you have an in reach, so you 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 prefer those slightly over a spot device. Then, yeah, I mean, I have friends. You know, pretty much, I, I have a core group of of five friends that you know we pretty you know we go to the whites almost every weekend, and three of us have in reaches, and one has a spot. And, you know, sometimes we'll communicate to each other because we might start out at different trailheads and trade keys, you know, to the other car so that we're not double backing. And we've a couple of times now have had uh, the inreaches always have always communicated. I did have one time where I was on flume side where it took half an hour for it to go through. Um, but it was mm-hmm. also telling me that I was plus or minus 600 feet in elevation. So I was just not in a good area. 
Um, yeah, yeah. But the like the spots they they work. I mean, in in a situation like we've only a couple times because when you send a text message, it sends your location. Um, a couple times when my friend was sending from his spot, it was actually showing him on the other side. So he was on Kingsman Ridge, and it was showing that he was on top of Lafayette. So something like that is was you know one of my determining factors, and you know to the getting an in reach over a spot was just a little bit more accuracy. But I mean, still, if you're going to hit SOS, they're both most likely in the whites going to make it out and allow you to be able to have that. I need help now situation handled. What other uh, functionality did the in reach units have? Because a lot of the search and rescue teams use Garmin products, you know, the 64 ST GPS units and this and that. So do they have, you know, maps with, um, indications as to where satellites are? Do they have track back or is it just strictly communication one way, two way? It, it, so two, two way communication, you can track yourself uh, on it and you can get tracked back mm-hmm. uh, on mine. And it also gives you your exact location at all times, your speed, just like anything else. But the big difference between like the 64 and just a normal inReach is battery life. Um, I can run this in reach even at five years old for five and a half days mm-hmm. without it having to be recharged. So that's communicating, you know, con- you know, tracking me location, but not tracking me in the sense of sending on a map. But it, anytime that I turn it on, it'll tell me how fast I'm going, my coordinates and my latitude. Wow. So, or altitude, sorry. That's pretty good. Yeah. So five and a half days when it was new, I was getting like 12 days. So, so, Brad, aside from this incident where you had to help this guy out, um, have you had any close calls yourself with your crew of hikers? <laughs> uh, my last close call when I was sectioning if I, in New Hampshire, I, I was on the AT just doing a section with friends back in, God, that had to be 2012 or 11. I blew my knee out uh, in the presidentials. And luckily there was six of us, so we just traded my bag down and, you know, made it go straight. And I hobbled my way out the two miles to the, the road. And then I had somebody come back. You sucked it up. Oh, but, yeah, it was it was a fun two miles. But, you know, it was a, it was one of those times where like, you know, it just you got to do what you got to do to not get carried to not get carried. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> that's the big joke well good for you for for sucking it up so that's good so you've been doing this for a long time now are you do you do mostly day hikes or are you doing a lot of overnights and so you go you hike on the weekends and then do, do overnights or uh, i do a little of everything um you know i've pretty much sectioned i've done the long trail as in two sections hmm. um i day hike winter hike you know, this winter was a low snow year, so I did a lot of winter hiking as day hikes. Um, done a little bit of winter camping. Not really my thing. It's a little cold. Um, but. <laughs> Minus 10 that day. You drove <laughs> by me. God. Yeah. No. I, I mean, I want to get into it, but I just want, like, I wanted somebody to show me the, the ins and outs of the of winter hiking and not just, like, you know, this is, here's the gear. Let, let's go, let's go in the woods in a negative 20 degree day and freeze <laughs> yeah 
<laughs> we'll take you up to the Randolph Mountain Club. We'll we'll take you up to Gray Knob or the Crag Camp or something. That that's the way to do the winter. Yeah, hiking, yeah. If you're so. staying in a camp, it's nice. Um, like we did Katahdin this year, and that was yeah, exactly. that was awesome as a winner, hiking into Daisy and then oh, you did, yeah, so. and then going up. But when you have a cabin, like me and my buddies used to do that all through uh, high school and then college. So that was a fun time, but getting in the tent is where I kind of want to try that once or twice, you know, on the warmer days or war- warmer winter days. Oh my God. It's crazy. Yeah. There's nothing like being in a tent in minus 10 degree weather. Yeah, it's pretty hardcore. To change your mind about winter hiking. <laughs> yeah. Once is enough. Yeah. But I do a lot of day hikes too. I mean, it's just, I like to mix it up. I don't like every weekend. All right. I'm going to go backpacking or every weekend I'm just doing a day hike. I like to you know, backpack one weekend, day hike the next weekend and just mix in different people or stay with my, you know, same trail family as we've all became over the last like year and a half. Nice. And then you're training for an ultra uh, marathon. Where's that? Uh, Colorado in oh, August. Man, that's epic. How many miles? Uh, it's going to be 50. 50. What are you doing for weekly miles right now to train for it? Uh, right now, because of my work schedule, I, not, not, not what I should be, but, uh, I'm trying to squeeze it in right now. I'm, I'm probably somewhere around like 80 to 80 miles a week. Uh, two long runs. Oh, that's, you, that's, you'll be all set <laughs> 80 miles no, a week. That's it, insanity. I just bought a, I just bought a breathe mask cause I'm not used to like, cause we're going to be at 10,000 at one point for oh, yeah, elevation. So like I just put that on and I went for a run. Was it two nights ago? Not good. <laughs> so what's the name of the race? Yeah. What is it? It's, it's part of the hard rock series. Okay. But it's the amateur one. All right. So uh, my buddy signed me up and we're, he's just like, you're coming. And Dude. I'm like, you're faster than I am. You'll be fine. That's some thin <laughs> air up there, man. Have fun. It's good stuff. Yeah. Awesome. Have you done any of the uh, the races around the whites, like the um, Chikora or Kilkenny Ridge or any, any of those? Uh, I haven't done it as in the sense of like actually on race day, but okay. I, my friend, I've done, I've, you know, a couple of Pemis for time, stuff like that. Kenny, I've done Chikura for time, stuff like that. And, you know, it is what, <laughs> you know, it's, I just like to go out there and have fun. I'm not so much obsessed about with the time, like, oh, I got this done in this time. But, you know, when you, when you come back and you, you look at your watch and you're like, you know, a day later, you're like, that's an awesome time. You feel good about it, but it, I'm not obsessed with the time. Like, it's just, I'm out there to have fun. Hmm. Awesome. Yeah, well, pretty soon you'll be old like me and you'll slow down significantly <laughs> and it gets depressing. So enjoy it while you can. Um, what, so with this, with the Crohn's disease, do you feel like the cardio workout and then the dialing, you're dialing in your diet, that's basically been what's, what's caused you to, to sort of push it to the, I guess not, not being as critical as it was previously. Yeah. I think it's more of the diet. Um, and then listening to my body when, you know, it, it might be a train day that says 10 miles, but at mile five, I'm, you know, not feeling it and, or, you know, mile two and a half, like I don't feel, I don't feel it there. So I just cut it back to five, um, and turn around. It's like, it, that's, what's really been kind of the, you know, ups and downs, we all have our good and bad days and you just got to listen to your body when you're going through those motions and kind of when you're in that training phase that just because today says 10 miles doesn't mean you have to go out and do 10 miles. Mm -hmm. Um, Just move the regimen around a little bit and find what works for you. Yeah. That's, that's pretty much what um, I've noticed in my family too. It's all about diet. 
it's amazing how much it uh, impacts yeah. the uh, condition. And everybody is the diet. Is it like a yeah yeah? Oh, so everyone's different. That was I was going to ask you. Was like is the diet that you're you're using is it applicable to anybody else that's listening that may have Crohn's or do you want to kind of give a quick overview on what that may be so they in case they want to experiment a little? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I like to share the information that I have, and you know, if anybody wants to reach out, they can too. But like you know, on the diet side. Like I said, everybody's different. And because of where my Crohn's is, um, I don't digest fats well. So I have to eat a lower fat diet. Some people can, you know, eat bacon and be fine. And I can't just that's, you know, I stay away from fatty foods. I eat a lot of chicken, a lot of ground turkey. I eat avocado so that I get the good fats, um, fats on that side. But a lot of people can't do that. Some like I can't do eggs no matter how I try, you know, it's kind of like that. So, you know, you wake up, I always start the day off with something bland, whether I'm feeling good or not. So it's just toast in the morning. And then eating smaller meals is a big contributive factor to, I think, helping Crohn's, Mm -hmm. Um, not just eating three meals a day. I eat, I want to say right now, because of my training, guaranteed six meals a day that are on the smaller portion side. Yeah. But it's somewhere, I'm eating somewhere between 5,000 to 6,000 calories a day. Wow. So, <laughs> well, you're running because, 80 miles a week. So, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. And I, and because where my Crohn's is, is where you get a lot of your like final vitamins intake. So, hmm. I take supplements, vitamin D, vitamin B12, iron, uh, especially people that have Crohn's need to really watch their iron levels mm-hmm. um, because. We, you know, we might be bleeding inside and we don't know it right. and stuff like that. So it's kind of like, it's one of those things that you constantly, I go every two, no, three weeks now and get blood work done, full workups, um, just because of the Humira that I'm on. And then also my training, my yeah. doctor wants to constantly watch, you know, blood levels, whatever's going on with my liver. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I lost 30% of my liver, uh, from a medicine that I was on in 2018 and that's why i was so sick yeah where are you going from uh treatment uh right now i am at brigham williams um in boston oh nice. i was at Leahy, but my doctor moved yeah. so i followed her to the new spot yeah okay cool awesome yeah that's uh, Leahy was where my family went yeah Leahy's awesome Stump, can I just say that I would be screwed if I had Crohn's because I love bacon and I'm one of those people that like doesn't eat anything all day and then just gorges myself at dinner. So I, I might not do too well. Everything Brad's saying is like, you know, eggs. I have a lot of food sensitivities and just like lactose, the whole thing. I'm like thinking to myself, oh my God. But uh, yeah, diet is everything. It really is. I have one other question. Um, yeah. Tell me about alcohol. Did you used to drink? Do you drink now? Do you just, what happened there? Honestly, three years ago, when, you know, back in 2018, when I was having that flare before that, you know, I'd co- you know, I'd come home and have wine or have, you know, a couple beers or, you know, some mixed drinks. And the next morning I just never felt right. right. And back when I came after that flare, I was like, you know, this probably wasn't helping my situation. Um, so after that, I just, I just quit and I haven't had any since in mm-hmm. three years. Oh, August will be three years. Um, and I, you know, I think it just goes back to the diet. Like it's just all about what you put in your body about what you're going to get out of it. Yeah. Pretty simple. 
Yeah, sorry yeah. if so if I was a little intrusive, but uh, it's just really oh, fascinating. No. no, I mean somebody might be listening and you know here and say maybe I'll try that and do six months of it and realize that hey they feel a hundred times better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your and, body is you know, very smart. It. Yeah, it's going to tell you what you need and what you shouldn't do if you're if you're listening. Yeah. So that's fantastic, man. Good for you. I'm really impressed. Cool story. Yeah, and thanks for stepping in and helping that guy. Um, I'm sure the family was probably freaking out. There wasn't anybody else besides you and your, your friend? Like nobody else had any, didn't have their shit together? You were the only one that had to come in and take control of that thing? Uh, there was one other guy that was there when, when I first arrived that, he was a, just a day hiker. And he had all the supplies that you would need other than a beacon, like everything that he could have got, anything you could have needed, he had in that bag. Um, and <laughs> he was just downstream. And when it, when the mother of the victim was yelling, um, you know, he kind of came up and said, hey, but, you know, it was more of just like, you know, what do you want to do? He kind of let me once I came in, you know take the reins of that and you know and we had a good conversation and we talked back and forth about you know whether we wanted to stand them up and say let's walk them you know out to franconia now because then right as the side-by-side gets there he'll be waiting there and it'll be a quick turn um and you know because he was throwing up so much i was just like you know what let's just let fishing game make that call um and you know once fishing game got there he asked a couple of questions was like, all right, we're going to walk you out and fishing game got one side. I got the other and we walked him out to Franconia. Um, but yeah, there was one other guy, everybody else there was like you said, flip flops, towels and a basketball backpack. That's a drawstring with maybe, maybe a little water in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> yeah. nobody else really there even knew what was going on. Yeah. You're, you're a hero, Brad. Yep. No, no, no question. I won't say that. Yes. Yeah, you did. You did great. You did great. <laughs> no, so, good work, kid. Um, you've convinced me. So I have been resisting getting the uh, the the in reach, but I do think. And as a matter of fact, as I was hiking through the middle of the Pemi and into Lincoln Woods, I was thinking about like where there was four of us, and I'll do more detail on on this hike in another episode. But um, you know, we were working without a net. We were in the middle of the Pemi wilderness um, with no way to communicate to anybody. So I do think that like at this point, I'm going to go shopping for. Uh, for probably a, an in-reach at this point. Yeah, especially if you're on that slide, because that, sl- that slide moves a lot. That's probably one of the most sli- – that, that slide probably moves more than any slide in the whites, I think, oh, yeah. from from the couple times I've been on it. It's never been the same the two times I've been on it, or three times I've been on it. Yeah, yeah, the Lincoln slide. It's, um, it's like sand surfing. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. Here's a question for you guys. Ready? Map, compass, warm clothing, extra food and water, flashlight, headlamp, matches first aid repair kit whistle rain wind jacket pocket knife is something missing <laughs> is something well, missing? I think there's two things i would say there's two things missing so number one is a splint given the amount of lower leg injuries that that we see i would say that everybody should be carrying a splint but I don't know what the other one is you're thinking. Well, I'm thinking communication. I mean, what if people have the yeah. ability to to say, hey, you know, generic message via, message via a spot or, you know, something more advanced like an inReach. I mean, is that something that's necessary? I don't know. Yeah, and it's... <laughs> it's useful. Obviously, look at this situation when you have, whether whatever, if it's a head injury or something more medically serious and you need quick response, 
Um, if you don't have something in your pack that's going to communicate quick, cell phones are not great. Um, you know, you're wasting time. What percentage of your calls are, are, are they almost all cell phone based or is there a pretty good following now between spot and in reach for when somebody does need a rescue that they're contacting you through? Um, you know, I get a lot of secondhand information. A lot of these calls go through 911, um, and then get directed to Fish and Game. So I think, you know, my impression, I can't say this for a certainty, but I think it's mostly cell phone calls. Yeah. Your comment before about winter, um, you know, and seeing more in the winter was, is definitely true. And I think it's just because the people that are out during the winter aren't as many just day hikers that are coming up, you know, you're not going to, you have to have more gear for winter. So it kind of, you know, brings in just a, a certain clientele to that, to the mountains that is a little bit more, you know, knows, knows what the situation that has to come through and, and knows what gear that they need to have in order to, you know, make it, you know, I don't want to say make it out, but complete the, complete the loop or complete the hike for the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see yeah. in the winter, the stakes are higher and, you know, the you're right, like the person that's going to go out in the winter has probably got some experience. But I think I'm just thinking through my own sort of progression with hiking. Like for a lot of years, I was just doing, you know, day hikes and I would be pretty close to areas where I would have some level of cell phone connectivity. Um, so I didn't really worry so much about the inReach. But now that I'm going like over the last couple of years, like I've gone to sections where like, um, you know, I'm up in the Mahoosic, um range. I'm up in Nash Stream Forest. I'm in the middle of the Pemi. I'm going to sections of the AT, like Mount Cube and, and that area there where you, you have miles and miles of no cell phone connectivity. That's when you start thinking about like, okay, you know, maybe I do need the beacon because I'm, I'm sort of extending these areas where I'm really out of any level of connectivity over a cell phone. So that's where I think you can kind of get away with the cell phone reliance in the day hiking world when you're sticking close to the 4,000 footers. But once you start really getting deep into the Pemi or exploring these other cool areas, then I think that's where you really want to start thinking about getting a beacon. And that's why I'm thinking like, it's all, it's time for me to buy a new toy. Yeah. Me and my friends <laughs> always laugh now because West Bond was kind of those, or the bonds were always kind of one of those peaks that you never got cell service. And then two years ago, all of a sudden, now you get full service out on West Bond and you're like, I'm in the middle of the Pemi. How am I getting full service right now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. When I hiked Garfield this winter, I like had connectivity the whole time and I was surprised, but, yeah. but no, very, very cool story, Brad. So any other questions, Stomp? We I, cover everything here? I think it's good. I mean, does, does this experience change the way you go about things, Brad, or any learning moments or what? Uh, no, I mean, just, it was it was nice to be able to help somebody in need and and have a device that was able to you know get them out faster than one of us having to go for a three mile run at the end of the day. Yeah, that's um, awesome. Out all the way out, and you know it was a good situation for everybody involved. I think um, he got to the trailhead faster and got out, and you know I still carry my inReach and I still have the same first aid bag that goes whether I'm going for a day hike or going for. Uh, five-day backpack. Mike, I think we have an A-plus student right here. <laughs> we do. He's a hero yes. and a uh, someone to look up to. So very good. But we'll add. So we'll put uh, we'll put your Instagram info on the show notes, and then I'll try to get the race info that you're running. And I want to just sort of yep. link in the show notes, and we can follow you and see what your results are. 
Okay. Um, back country. But yeah, thank Brad. you so much for for taking the time and you know, stomp. I can't believe you never told me about this guy before. Oh, this kid rocks. I mean, well, he's just. Secret. I like to fly under the radar. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, he's super impressive. I mean, they're they're like a handful of people I watch, and this this dude is like trying to set me up with a snowmo ride and i was like yeah i gotta follow this kid i never took him up on it but <laughs> yeah. then i watched his story progress i'm like damn this kid he means a business you know he's awesome so and he showed his true colors 80 miles a week that's insanity <laughs> so you, you better well, win this race good. brad I'm, I'm gonna be looking at the results how old are you 30 oh that's that's crushing me Prime of your life, man. Prime <laughs> of your life. I remember those days. You look like you're in your mid twenties. I, got, I gotta go. The, probably five more years, and then I'll be. I'll be. I'll be like, all right, I'm done with this. I'm just gonna backpack from now on. <laughs> cool. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about the topics covered on today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information on slasserpodcast.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until next time, on behalf of Mike and Stomp, get out there and crush some peaks. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fishing game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words to describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Lieutenant James Neeland, New Hampshire Fishing Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? It seems to me the most common is being unprepared, and I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us at all.